0: Civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people.
1: We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster.
0: That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Go Simone explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions, and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. In an article published in the Sunday Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Barbara Ehrenreich, an American author and political activist, writes... What we need is a tough new kind of feminism with no illusions. Women do not change institutions simply by assimilating into them. We need a feminism that teaches a woman to say no, not just to the date rapist or overly insistent boyfriend, but when necessary to the military or corporate hierarchy within which she finds herself. We need... A kind of feminism that aims not just to assimilate into the institutions that men have created over the centuries, but to infiltrate and subvert them, or take them down. In this new interview, we were interested in exploring further the politics of climate change, What role women political leaders play in responding to the challenges the world is facing today? How are they leading climate actions? What are the barriers to their full and equal participation in decision-making and management? We wanted to hear the perspectives of a female politician, the roots of her political engagement, how she deals with a system designed by and for men, and what it takes to be a change agent. Our Simon today is Sarah henson young She's been a senator for South Australia since 2008, representing the Australian Greens. With Sarah, we talked about human rights activism, what a Green New Deal should look like, systemic greed in today's world, and being real. My first question is about your roots. I was curious to know where you grew up in Victoria. We have native Australian bush and forest
1: and gorgeous natural coastline. So it's a really, really special spot. I went to a school which only had a couple of hundred kids. So small country school, came to Adelaide for university, fell in love with Adelaide and South Australia and have been here ever since.
0: Do you have memories in your childhood that could explain the origin of your activism and your feminist and progressive uh, values? Is there a moment or several moments you recall that shaped uh, this set of values?
1: I grew up in a family who cared a lot about uh, the environment and my parents wanted to really be um, pretty self-sufficient. The The farm that we lived on was uh, able to be run by my mum and dad and just satisfy our needs. The love for the Australian forests and the native forest was very strong. My parents are very involved in campaigns and activities to try and stop native forest logging. That, of course, um, has rubbed off on me with my passion for saving the environment and taking action on climate change. But it was really growing up in a small community and seeing how people needed to work together in order to deal with problems and issues that I guess was the burning uh, reason for my social justice bent. When I went to university, I was very, very involved in campaigns at the time that involved uh, refugees being held in detention here in South Australia in Woomera and the Baxter detention centres. I just could not believe that uh, young people my age were being put into detention just because they'd fled war and persecution. I was studying anthropology at the time uh, and was very concerned with the way we were treating refugees and the way we were talking about their human rights as opposed to being different to the human rights of other groups. Those moments and times, the community that I was surrounded by, I think, really gave me the drive for progressive politics view that I have of the world now.
0: You started your career as a campaigner for Amnesty International. Why did you decide to then enter in politics at a young age, 25, and was it what you expected of it? I think I was
1: quite naive. I've always been very uh, strong-minded about the issues that I believe in and uh, wanting to make the world a better place. I've always believed that environment issues and climate change are human rights issues. I've always believed that equality needs to be underpinned by looking after the environment because it shouldn't be that only those who are rich enough uh, or have the resources or the access to education can make good choices about the environment they live in. I fundamentally believe that it is a human right to have access to clean air, clean water and clean food, which means clean soil. That, to me, is the basis of my environmental and human rights activism. I probably entered politics thinking that uh, there'd be more collaboration, that people would be prepared to listen to others' ideas. I was probably naive when I first started as to just how party politics dominates the debate and uh, solutions that are discussed in Parliament. I'm somebody who has always believed that you need to listen to, to other people who have a different point of view in order to strengthen your own argument. Finding an issue to connect with other people over is one of the best ways of actually helping people change their minds. I didn't realise just how tribal party politics would be in Canberra, but you know, I'm 12 years on. I, I enjoy every, every minute of it. Politics can be rough and it can be exhausting, but I'm just humbled every day. I get to stand up and talk about issues that I care about and am challenged on the debates uh, for the solutions.
0: We will talk further about Australian politics, obviously, but it is hard to avoid the American elections as a lot of us are glued to our screens watching the results unfold. I should highlight that in the times of which we speak, the results are still extremely tight. Donald Trump is falsely claiming he won. Some voices are alerting on a fascist coup in the making. So first question for you, what is your analysis of the current political landscape in the US and how do you explain that after four years of Trumpism and everything that comes with it, the racism, bigotry, sexism, deepening inequalities, 69 millions of Americans and counting have decided they could live with that another four years
1: Watching on from here in Australia, I think it's just terrifying to see the leader of what's described as the free world, the American president, stand in the White House and declare uh, that uh, the election is being stolen from him, uh, falsely, falsely so. I believe Donald Trump is taking a fight to democracy. And I'm a big believer in democracy. I think if you believe in human rights, if you believe the community voice is uh, the strongest part of, it should be the strongest part of political decision-making, then you have to believe and advocate for democracy. And what I see is the US president losing power, throwing a tantrum and being prepared to tear down his own country as he does it. Having said that, you're right, and the the results are closer uh, than polls had predicted. And I think that really indicates a divided America. I mean, perhaps it's not the United States of America right now, it's the divided states of America. But I also think this hasn't come out of nowhere. Donald Trump has spent four years undermining democracy. This isn't just a a tantrum that he's thrown at the end of uh, an election which while we still don't know the result, looks like he may lose. He has been preparing for this moment. And the undermining of democracy, I think, is dangerous for everybody. Australia uh, needs to stand up all that out, and so does um, every other democracy around the world. The issues that the globe faces right now are too big, much more difficult for one country to handle on their own. Uh, We need a global effort, and democracy standing shoulder to shoulder has to be part of that.
0: The Senate Environment and Communications Legislation Committee session announced that according to the Bureau of Meteorology's forecast, Australia will be 4.4 degrees hotter by 2100. Projections are actually extremely dire on what would be the consequences of such a warming. It means more heatwaves, harsher fire weather and water scarcity – Despite this, the Morrison government is supporting new mining projects, a gas transition. It has weakened environmental laws. It's moving ahead with infrastructure projects that threatens Australian biodiversity and many more examples. It seems that not only we face a headlong rush to climate breakdown, but also an acceleration to it. How do you explain this phenomenon Is it denial, greed, uh, irresponsibility, or a blind faith in technology?
1: Look, I think the predictions that Australia is going to be facing 4.4 degrees within the next uh, 80 years or before is terrifying. Our planet is heating up and it's heating up much faster than science was even prepared to predict a decade ago. We know what the reason is. It is because of the burning of fossil fuels. And yet, I think many understand that uh, we have to transition from coal and coal-fired power. This obsession with just replacing coal with gas is not uh, rooted in the reality that we are quickly running out of time to slow down temperature rise. And we've got a decade. We have 10 years to drastically reduce our carbon pollution. That is not going to be done if we accelerate gas. It just won't. And and the reason why this is happening, the reason why there is a push for this is because uh, there are far too many vested interests in politics. The revolving door between those who work in government and ministers' offices and political parties and those who work as lobbyists within the fossil fuel industry and the mining corporations, uh, whether they are uh, lobbyists or whether they're on company boards, whether they're uh, shareholder groups, there is just too many vested interests in this. And while people are scrambling to secure their kind of financial futures as the coal price drops around the world, we see excuse after excuse being made for the expansion of gas. It is the exact opposite that needs to be done. Australia has an amazing potential. Uh, we are the sunniest continent on Earth. We have amazing solar power capacity. We have amazing wind power capacity. There is geothermal options. There is a hydro technology options in terms of the use of hydropower. And we have a vast amount of space for building storage as well in terms of storage capacity. The renewable energy industry is growing. It is growing in spite of efforts that are being put into keeping the fossil fuel industry alive. We're just talking about the power that's generated domestically. The biggest contributor of carbon pollution caused by Australia, of course, is our coal exports and our gas exports. We are one of the largest exporters of fossil fuel in the world, and therefore we are one of the largest exporters of pollution, and we have to take responsibility for that. This is old world thinking, and we have to move on. And it's part of why I'm saying that this election in the US is so important. Not only are we seeing an attack on democracy, but we've seen four years of an attack on global action. Donald Trump pulling America out of every global forum he could has been extremely damaging to global efforts, particularly in relation to climate change. We cannot afford another day of global inaction. And we can't afford another four years of the U.S. playing political games with things that need to be managed on a global level. And Australia has to step up in the EU, even increasingly the U.K., many of the trading partners throughout the Asia-Pacific are starting to look at Australia and say, well, hang on a minute. If we're serious about having to reduce pollution global wide, when is Australia going to start taking some responsibility for all of the pollution that we're exporting?
0: Worldwide, uh, progressives are calling out for a Green New Deal. It's become a bit of a buzzword in the progressive movement, uh, but there are, in fact, many different visions uh, for a Green New Deal. On this, uh, Varshini Prakash, the woman who founded the American Sunrise Movement, says, I've heard a lot of men say her number one climate priority is decarbonization, and the benefits of that are jobs and clean water and livable climates. Their focus is on inanimate objects, on solar panels and electric cars and not on the root of the problem, which is humanity. We need to ask ourselves, who do these technical solutions actually help? Are they working to eradicate the existing inequalities in our system or to deepen them? Uh, How can we make sure that the Green New Deal is not another way to perpetuate existing inequalities? Can you please tell us more about the type of green transition you support? In my mind, a Green New Deal allows
1: us to deal with the challenges of having to transition to a clean powered economy. But there is no point in having a green-powered economy if we don't actually deal with the issues of inequality, because in order to deal with this global crisis, and it is a crisis, pollution doesn't stop at uh, state borders or uh, national borders. But, uh, pollution is, it, it is global-wide and it has a, a an impact. And in fact, more than anything, the global impact of climate change and pollution and the destruction of our environment is actually having a detrimental and more weighted impact on those communities and countries around the world who have less. So it is fundamentally an issue of not just environmental crisis, but a crisis of inequality. So a Green New Deal, if it is to deal with this global crisis, it must also be used as an opportunity to deal with the issues of inequality. And uh, that, of course, means dealing with poverty, helping uh, nations who are facing the worst threats of climate change, whether that's through famine, drought, their homes being flooded because of sea level rise. These communities deserve to be right at the top of what solutions are going to be funded in order to deal with this transition. My sense of a Green New Deal is that we have this big challenge in front of us. There is a lot of jobs, of course, to be created in doing this, but the use of technology should enable us to share the benefits. They shouldn't be. They don't have to be centralised by those who already have enough. The distribution of power, actual energy power, should be front and centre to ensure that we help communities step out of poverty. But also the distribution of democratic power can be used to actually give those who have been left effectively voiceless, yet carrying the can, to have a say in how these technologies can help them.
0: We are seeing some national leaders. I'm thinking of the president of Ireland, Michael Higgins, for example, who have taken a more radical approach endorsing the donut economics conceptualized by Kate Raworth, for example, which is an economic model that enables countries, cities, and the planet as a whole to live within its natural uh, limits. It's part of a post-growth school of thoughts. What are your views on those uh, researchers, thinkers, citizens who are imagining another form of society calling for the creation of a new radical fair, careful system different from capitalism?
1: Well, I think it is already being forced upon us to consider how we deal with the environmental crisis that threatens the whole of humanity with solutions that are actually distributed fairly. Because if we don't actually have a distribution, so centralised, uh, and whether I mean centralised by, uh, through corporations or centralised through the most powerful governments or centralised through men versus women, then we, there is no way we can deal with this issue. I genuinely believe, I, I understand the, the donut type analogy and making sure our, we do need to start living within our means. Mother Nature is forcing us to do that. If we want to survive as a species, if we want to survive as a, a global community, national communities, as local communities, we actually do have to start living within our means. And for those of us who are, live in richer countries, at the same time are creating the most pollution, we need to stop being so greedy.
0: Eco-feminism explores uh, the ties between the patriarchal uh, society and the destruction of the environment. Is it uh, an approach that resonates with you? I think what's amazing about the real leaps and bounds that are
1: being made in the advocacy for the protection of the environment and for climate action, the real wins are being led by women. I take such heart from you know, young women like Greta Thunberg, that, that she's out there being a hero and a champion for climate action, not just for her generation, but for the world. It's wonderful to see young women, feminists, standing up and really taking the mantle of and leading the, the, the charge on uh, what climate action needs to look like across the world. And I do accept that I think women are very, have always been for millennia, the ones who think beyond just our own selves, the type of leadership qualities that women bring to politics. It is collaboration. It is listening. It is guidance, uh, yet care. These are the types of qualities that we need in a fractured world where we're dealing with a crisis that requires everybody to play their part. The boys have had a pretty good go and overseen the industrial revolution, which has created so much pollution around the world. It's now up to women, I think, to be stepping up and, and really being given uh, the opportunity in the space to show a new style of leadership, which is about global action.
0: As you've uh, highlighted, female-led countries tend to have an advantage in the current COVID uh, crisis. However, for, for decades, women have been taught that if we want to get ahead, we should act like men, lean in to male power structures, be more assertive, more competitive, speak uh, louder, self-promote more, and never ever say um, sorry. I know you've tried to not refrain from showing your vulnerabilities. It is actually something you talk about in your book, En Garde. But I was uh, wondering if at the beginning of your political career, you were tempted to lean in.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think um, we're... Whatever type of leadership as women we enter, there is a tendency, at least in the beginning, to feel as though in order to be taken seriously, you need to lean into those masculine types of leadership. And I think we need to be honest and realistic that some women, how they do business and, and that's fine. Uh, But uh, there is nothing wrong or weak about doing leadership differently and doing leadership in a way that is uh, considered to be expressing both strength and femininity at the same time. Some may describe that as being vulnerable. I describe it as being real.
0: In the current uh, climate, uh, how do you keep your motivation to, to fight? How do you deal with those moments where you are a bit down and how do you keep hopeful for the future? <laughs> I go for a run.
1: <laughs> I'm um you know on a physical sense I think it's really important to find what it is that keeps keeps your own self functioning at the best capacity and it, you know I I've talked about this a little bit but in different forums that when I first in, started in politics there was such an I felt a, such a strong sense that I had to prove that I could do the job just as well as any bloke could, that I couldn't show that I was doing anything but the job all of the time. I I didn't put enough time into keeping myself, you know, physically maintained, mentally maintained as much as I should, and I just took that for granted. And then when I started to recognize that, no, these are good things to do, then I was too, I thought, oh, but I can't admit I'm doing it. I can't show that this is something I have to take out of, I have to put into my day. To keep myself motivated, to keep myself strong, to keep myself able to deal with, you know, the horrible stories sometimes that you hear from constituents about, you know, the struggles that they're dealing with. And I'm I'm somebody who's always listened and, and loved hearing other people's stories. It's what motivates me. But in order to really hear them, you have to be able to feel them. If you want to be motivated and use those stories for political action and to try and improve things, you you can't just listen to them but you have to be able to feel them and to do that you have to be in good shape i used to kind of you know not tell people that i was going for a run and i'd say i had a meeting i've learned over the years to just it's good to actually show that in order to take on other people's issues you also have to keep yourself fit healthy and ready at all times and so i don't lie about going running anymore i make a point that uh, that i'm going for a run and when i come back i will have a solution
0: Do you have a piece of advice for women who are tempted by politics but are still hesitant? If you're not hesitant in
1: some way, then uh, you won't be being realistic about what politics is. Politics is not easy. It's a hard gig. And it's meant to be hard because it's important. If it was easy, it wouldn't have so much power. It wouldn't have so much influence. It, It wouldn't matter so much. But it does matter and we need good people in politics and we need more women in politics. So don't be put off because you're hesitant. It's about thinking about what you're hesitant about. Is it that you're worried about the dealing with the media? Well, you can learn those things. Uh, is it that you're worried about having to be across all of the issues all the time? Well, you will just have to find space and find good staff and, put, and have good people that you trust around you. I think you have to identify what, what, why you're hesitant Being hesitant should not be a barrier. It means that you're actually taking it seriously, but it's absolutely worth it. We need more women in politics. If we are going to deal with the big global issues that confront us right now, climate change, the destruction of the environment, the struggle for equality, real equality, that's only gonna happen with more women around the
0: table. To conclude, would you have a book, a film, an art piece, a cultural reference you would like to recommend uh, to our listeners, something that uh, inspired you lately?
1: I'm a big believer in art across the board, creative expression as a way of communicating values and what's important to to each of us. I'm not going to name a specific book or, or film or song, but I think it is important to immerse yourself in the things that make you happy you know for me sometimes I think about the moments where I take the most strength and draw breath listening to whatever the song is that my daughter who's 13 is playing on her iPhone at the time and we turn it up and we dance in the kitchen and that is an expression of freedom it's an expression of love care and commitment to the next generation and it's moments like that that I don't get enough of them, but when I do, I cherish them.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for your time and for your words in accepting this interview with us. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, Roxanne. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Karen Crossan for the editing and Alicia Von Ziel for the transcription. We are proud to be independently produced and to offer free open access content. If you like our work, speak about it around you and share it. You can also support us by making a small donation via our crowdfunding page accessible on our website, gosimon.org. Thank you and see you in two weeks.